0: Welcome back to Twiddly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L with me. He still hasn't found what he's looking for.
1: It's Mr. Jeff mclarge <laughs> Hey, you too. <laughs> uh, good, good to talk to you, man.
0: Unfortunately, the last couple of weeks I've been talking, we've been talking about, like, health issues. Yes. Um, I, I guess we're, we're at that age where what they call the Bermuda Triangle of health.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> At <laughs> any minute, a flight of Air Force trainers is going to disappear between my nipples and my belly button.
0: If you say so, okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about.
1: Oh, in the in the 1940s, where the training oh, flights the went down triangle. to the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. Yeah, come I, on, man, stay the, with me.
0: I made the Bermuda uh, Triangle reference and just forgot all about it. Yeah. So, uh, so at, at any rate, right before pre-show started my doorbell rang which is always off-putting because nobody rings the only time anyone ever rings my doorbell is some sort of solicitor you know yeah so there's this dude he's pitching the uh the solar panels right you know oh yeah i'm always super suspicious of scams because i have the internet uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes and i've had it for a while right so The guy, uh, you know, he's over there pitching. I was like, look, I I don't have a lot of time right now. Do you have a business card? Right. And he says, I do not. And I was like, okay, that's suspicious as hell. Right. And he says. uh,
1: Definitely not good.
0: So he says, well, you know, we're we're, uh, a solar panel company. We're kind of into like the whole green energy thing and having business cards would be counterintuitive. Well, did you say like
1: I wasn't planning to heat my house with the thing? I was planning to (laughs) look at it later and then call you back.
0: So so I said, "Do you have a QR code that I could scan?" And right. his face just kind of like drops because I guess nobody has asked him that question yet. And he says to me, "Do you ever get anybody with that one?" And I'm like, "I'm not trying to get you. I'm asking you a legitimate question. Are you trying to get me? You know
1: yeah. We have folks that come through our neighborhood now and now and again, and the best thing ever is that my dog, who we edit out of the podcast. Uh, or Bill edits out of the podcast whenever she goes uh, it's insane trying to eat somebody who's knocking on my door, delivering something, or walking by my house. Or she goes bananas, and the solicitors are like, Well, I'm not going in that house because that dog is going to eat me. You need a dog, Bill, is what I'm getting at, to sick on people like the scammy solar panel guy with no oh, QR code.
0: No, I don't need a dog because I have a quick wit. Uh, During uh, during the pandemic, there was a returning phone call scam that I would get because the solar panel thing may or may not be a scam, but it's kind of based on an old, reliable chimney sweep scam. Uh Uh, What they do is they come into your house to, quote unquote, sweep the chimney, and then they, they, quote unquote, find all sorts of problems and then charge you, you know, through the nose to fix these problems that don't exist in the first place.
1: Look, Um, let me tell you this, though. Like, if the chimney, if a chimney sweep came to my house and wanted to mm -hmm. climb down into my chimney and sweep it and look for things that were wrong, look, I've never met Dick Van Dyke before, but I would probably hire that guy because he's 110 years old and he's still chimney sweeping. So,
0: yeah, I'm going to put that like on my list of things to say to chimney sweepers when they call my house because I had a long conversation over the course of months with the same woman. Every time this person called, I would give a different voice. (laughs) Nice. And a different excuse as to why I don't uh, need my chimney swept. I told her that I didn't have a a chimney. Mm -hmm. And she says, well, how do you heat your house? And I'm not proud of this one, but... Uh, I said I have a bunch of strategically placed candles, and I eat a lot of burritos. And whenever the house <laughs> needs heating up, I just want fire one away, and does really does the trick. Right. And she said I was disgusting, and hung up on me. Uh-huh. The next time she called, different voice again. And I explained that I I was in quarantine, and she's like, "Do you have COVID?" And I said, "Certainly not. My parents were Catholic." Uh, <laughs>
1: I like the ones that come as text messages now, so it'll be like, oh, my oh, God, yeah. can you call me? I I, I I totally forgot what the thing is. Like, Let me know, and then they name some person that you don't know, and the scam works right. like you write back and go like, hey, dude, that's not me. My name is something else, and then that starts a conversation, and they ask you for money, right? <laughs> I just send back pictures of, actually, birthday girl for this week, Kim Yo-Jong, Kim Jong-il's sister looking very stern, yeah. and say, <laughs> oh, here's a picture of me. <laughs> Who are you? And then they're like, "Can you, do you have more pictures and I said pictures of, of of Kim 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 Jong Un's sister until eventually they leave me alone." <laughs> uh finally this uh this woman called me back like
0: for the, what was the final time? Mm-hmm. I let her off the hook. I was like, "Every time you have called, I've given you a different voice and a different excuse. This is literally your fourth time calling yeah. me. I'm on to you, Agnes." I'm onto your scam. You know, I know you're full of sh- yeah. and just like just my chimney. Yeah, just <laughs> let it. Yeah, <laughs> just let let it go. Right. You could tell from that point forward that this woman was not part of a legitimate business because the amount of swearing she did <laughs> at that point in time.
1: Did you do them in different voices? That's what I want to know.
0: <laughs> that would have been a perfect end to this story, but right. no. Unfortunately, no. But that is the end of our story, and we're just about to get into the show proper. Ah. But before we get into the show proper, we I do have...
1: thought I was going to dodge two. this.
0: Okay. Nope. The very popular and always well-received trivia question. All right, Jeff. Uh, there is one city in the United States of America that is home to not only the first hospital, but also the first zoo, the first medical school, and the first daily newspaper. What city is home to these four firsts? Well, you got about 45 minutes to think about
1: it. I I am going to think about it for a while because I don't know. Well, at least I don't know yet, as far as you know. All right.
0: right. Uh, But this is the week beginning September the 26th, and
1: I think it's your turn to start. It is my turn to start. September 26th, 1990. ABC TV, with a ton of fanfare, premieres a show. That was live in infamy known as Cop Rock. <laughs> and for those in the audience who don't remember TV in nineteen ninety, every single evening show was pretty much a police show. The most popular yes. show in the in the country was NYPD Blue, and it broke all kinds of barriers because it had swearing and drinking and smoking and David Crusoe's naked buttocks and other stuff on it, which weren't done on any show. It was like drama drama. It was HBO before there was HBO, right? Yeah, um,
0: the, the, uh, the the early 90s was like, yeah, the beginning, not the beginning, but the beginning of the wall of right. the police procedurals.
1: Right. This is a, a Twibbly reenactment of how the idea of taking a, a gritty police procedural and turning it into a Broadway musical came about. So brace yourself. This is Twibbly Theater. Mm-hmm. Hey, we need another cop show for like Friday night because the, the lead in from NYPD Blue is really strong. All right. Hold on.
0: Uh, musical. <laughs> and then the other exec goes, ah, hold on. I got, I'm just going to finish this handle of vodka. and I'll get back to you.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's exactly how it went. So hold on. Hold on. Do we have jazz hands? <laughs> so the thing with of cop Of course, rock miss was, jazz hands. Jazz hands. So cop rock was like a big deal. It was advertised as groundbreaking TV. Again, there's got to be a big pile of powder involved in the marketing of the show. It was groundbreaking TV, and it was like must-watch TV, and people must-watched it. For, it was canceled before it was finished production. It only aired 11 episodes of the 11 episodes that were made, in a time where a typical TV series ran for 22 or 26 episodes, right? In a season. Right,
0: and and like we said, it was a police procedural. That was just like a license to print money at the time.
1: Right, so shows like NYPD Blue, 12 seasons. Hill Street Blues, same producer for both of those shows as Cop Rock. Uh, Hill Street Blues ran for nine seasons, like this show ran for eleven episodes and was gone. And I, I think it's probably because they one they ran out of songs. Like how many cop <laughs> songs can you possibly sing? And they had to create their own music. I don't think they were licensing music from Out in the World, like no, no, the way no. that Glee was. You know, like Glee's a musical too, but they did yeah. other people's music. It wasn't just the cops that were singing, too. It was like the lawyers,
0: the jurors, the crack dealers, everybody. Yeah. You know what I think? I think that all the people with any, like, real money were, like, either on vacation or maybe they were out sick or something like that. And then just, like, some kid was like, I'm going to make my dreams come true (laughs) and just, like, greenlit that thing on his own.
1: Yeah. Like, at that time, Stephen Bochco could have probably done anything except mm-hmm. for, like, I'm going to say, like, episodic science fiction, big-budget episodic science fiction, which is the, kind of the norm now. And I'm sure it would be funny if it was one of those, like, man, I've been pitching this sci-fi show now three seasons, and I can't get anywhere with it. They just want me to keep making more cop shows. Well, I'll show them. <laughs> I'll make cop show tunes. And <laughs> and that they're like, yeah, snap that bad boy right up. Yeah, No more spaceships, right? We're back on the adult boat? Okay. And then 11 episodes later, it's gone. All right. Moving on to the next day.
0: September the 27th, 1822, French scholar Jean-Francois Champollion, or Jean Francis Champion, uh, anyway, (laughs) announces that he has deciphered the Egyptian hieroglyphics using the Rosetta Stone.
1: Yeah. Up until then, no one really knew what was said on the inside of the walls of the tombs of the pharaohs. Or the other buildings that they had found in the Egyptian desert. Even the Egyptians didn't know that language was long dead.
0: That's a bizarre alphabet if you think about it. Cat, you know. (laughs) Cat is a letter.
1: I'm sure that it's – I always think about the Rosetta – like the importance of the Rosetta Stone when I imagine like looking at those for the first time and thinking like I don't know what any of this represents knowing that it's something that's either telling a story or it's a list of items or it's a, a set of instructions, but I have no way of understanding it without some intermediary language to help. So as some right. of you write science fiction stories, like a lot of the conversations that we have in science fiction writing are about how do you communicate with a species that doesn't communicate the same way that you do? And hieroglyphics are so specialized, at least the Egyptian hieroglyphics are so specialized, that yeah. being able to, to finally sort of crack the code and go like, oh, the cat means the sound, uh, which is part of the word, whatever that comes, the, the person standing next to Anubis is another sound. And those, oh, mm-hmm. those sound like modern Egyptian, sort of like this word. Oh, that's what that means. And they're able to slowly sort of put the language together. But the intermediary language that made that possible was Greek, just carved into the bottom of the Rosetta stone with all of the hieroglyphics mm-hmm. carved on the top part. So it was like a, it was like a code key. And it turns out the,
0: uh, the, the hieroglyphics on the wall said, we have been trying to reach you about... <laughs> your extended car warranty. <laughs> your extended sphinx warranty. Somebody wants to sweep the chimney over of the uh,
1: of the Gaza pyramids. Well, it here. does explain the fall of the Egyptian empire. Like They gave all their money to... Uh...
0: Yeah, they got scammed. I fell for it again, son of a bitch! So, yeah, uh, also now taking a piece out of that rock, haha, the Rosetta Stone is now a language learning program that pretty, you know, boldly boasts that they can teach you any language.
1: Yeah, they have all kinds of stuff on in Rosetta Stone. I haven't looked through to see if they have any, like, crazy esoteric stuff, like cuneiform or Mesopotamian or something like that, but... They have pretty much all Sanskrit. modern languages. Yes, Sanskrit, <laughs> Sanskrit. A,
0: not a re, not even a, re, uh, a spoken language.
1: Well, I think that's like cuneiform, like Mesopotamian cuneiform. is just, it's like impressions in clay. Like, I don't know how to say that. It's like three triangles. I don't do you know? impressions.
0: My, my specialty is in medicine. All right. Uh,
1: moving on to the 28th. September 28th, 1998. Our favorite subjects of both listening, fun, and occasional ridicule kiss released their Reunion album, Psycho Circus, of of which the Reunion is like, what, three songs on the record of... One. One one song. song. (laughs) One song. And that song, Psycho Circus, the title track, also comes with the worst video of 1990, possibly. (laughs) Or all of the 1990s, 1998. uh, So yeah,
0: this album came out in 1998, following the success of their Reunion tour, It only took them a couple of hours to figure out, you know, Gene and Paul, to figure out that Peter and Ace weren't working on the same level of professionalism that these two have been since 1983. No, they were working on uh, the same
1: level of professionalism they were working on in 1978,
0: which is none. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, uh, Peter had left in 1980 and Ace uh, followed suit in 1983. And then they got back together for the tour in 1996, famously. And then, hey, uh, you know, I think it'd be a really good idea if we uh, put out another album. You know, the fans would really like that. And then Peter was like, yeah, that sounds like a f-ing great idea. We'll put out an album. And he's like, yeah, well, actually, Peter, you're not going to be on it at all. <laughs> We're going to use your face. And that's it. There you go. Uh, so, yeah, out of all the songs on the album, there's only one song that all four of them play on at the same time. And that's a song called Into the Void, which was written by Ace Fraley. The rest of the songs, they had a bunch of, you know, studio musicians. And even that Bruce Kulick, who was in KISS up until the reunion, man, Paul Stanley must have a pair of brass balls the size of duck pin bowling balls to, like, you know, basically, yeah, well, we're not going to use you in the band anymore, but we'd like you to play on the album because, well, quite frankly, the other guy's an alcoholic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it was probably more along the lines of, like, yeah, I can give you guys like $15,000 each. Mm-hmm. And, and Ace Fully was like, well, look, I'm playing clubs that hold almost 30 people now. Like, Of course I'll be on the record for that.
0: The other songs on this album are just like cookie cutter Kiss stuff, which is fun to say. Uh, there's one song on here called I Pledge Allegiance to the State of Rock and
1: Roll. <laughs> there's one of those on every Kiss record. It's like God gave rock and roll to you, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, we had a real big hit with that rock and roll all night. Um,
1: (laughs) Let's see if we could do it on every record. And nope, they have never done it. Not on any. Yeah.
0: I had never really listened to this album until I got Spotify maybe about two years ago. And by and large, it's okay. It sounds like a Kiss. It sounds like a Kiss album. Uh, They still play the song Psycho Circus in concert. That's a staple. And there's a KISS YouTube channel called We Are One, and that's based off of a song on this album, too. <laughs> it's, it's an album. It's a KISS album. It is a KISS album. All right. Uh, moving on to the 29th, September 29th, 1976. Uh, your friend and mine, Jerry Lee Lewis, attempting to shoot soda bottles, hits his bass player, Norman Owens, twice in the chest.
1: How do you... <laughs> Oops. <laughs> do you how do you shoot him twice in the chest like shooting his by accident well how do you do like I'm pretty sure this probably wasn't an accident by this point because the first time it's not like he's gonna stand there and just look at his chest and think hey you shot me in the chest and I'm not gonna drop to the ground and be terrified you missed (laughs) right I'm still right Uh you didn't get the bottle I also want to know like was Norman carrying the bottles like was he bringing the soda over to Jimmy Lewis like Hey, Jerry, you want a Coke?
0: (laughs) Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, coincidentally enough, had a nickname at the time, The Killer.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'm pretty sure he didn't kill Norman Owens, but I'm sure Norman Owens was a lot more on his guard once he recovered.
0: Right, right, right. I mean, for all we know, it could have been like a a BB gun.
1: Right, yeah. It was
0: probably a BB gun. I don't think he was like... uh, you know, crazy enough I, to be shooting a,
1: a twenty-two. It, well, or a, okay, I find it hard to believe that if it was a BB gun, it would be anything that we'd ever talk about. It's not like Norman Owens would be like, remember that time he shot me in the chest? And Jerry Lewis would go like, with a BB gun? And that would be the yeah. end of the conversation. Like, it would never go well, anywhere.
0: Well, uh, uh, the other side of that argument is if he did get shot in the chest with a real gun, Jerry Lee Lewis would be, oh, I don't know, in
1: prison. That I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that he killed him. It just means yeah. that he shot him in the chest. I no, know. they have laws against not killing people with guns, it's, too. That's, that's very true. Well, maybe it's <laughs> one of those, like, Norman is like, look, man, if I press charges, I'm going to lose my job as the bass player in this band, and I. <laughs> it's the only thing I know how to do. It's the only job I've ever had. I got serious decisions to make. He's yeah. the guy that signs my paychecks, you know? Yeah. So...
0: Uh, circling back around to Kiss, Ace Frehley used to shoot his gun, which was like a real gun, like a twenty-two or whatever. I mean, twenty-two is a lower caliber, but still, it's nothing, it's not something you would fire in your house, in the basement, on cement wall foundations with people around. He would just be like, hey, look at this, guys! And bang! And then you just hear like, pew, 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 around the room, and people are like ducking behind couches for their lives and stuff.
1: Yeah, it's, he definitely strikes me as the type that would do that kind of stuff, and then be surprised, like when he hits Jerry Lee Lewis's, you know, bass player in the chest twice. Hey, what are you doing, woman? Hey, I thought you were out playing with that piano guy. <laughs> Give me one of them sodas. <laughs> All right, moving on to the thirtieth. September 30th, 1991. Uh, Amazingly enough, no one was shot on this show, but uh, 1991, Jerry Springer's tabloid talk show, The Jerry Springer Show, debuts in syndication.
0: That was insanely popular.
1: For those of you who do not know, uh, what the hell we're talking about when we talk about The Jerry Springer Show, Jerry Springer was one of the second banana afternoon talk shows that used to be on, like, UHF channels or syndication channels. So there was... Oprah, like Phil Donahue, and maybe one other that were like afternoon TV shows that started right after the soap operas ended on network TV. Those shows had guests that were like actual people who did things that you'd know about. And then there was a second tier of them. So like there was Sally, Jesse, Raphael, Jerry Springer, uh, uh, dozens of others, Jenny Jones and others, right? Who had real people on their shows, but they were just like real people from outside the studio who would who would come in and fight. They were guests that were basically set up to make people who are sitting at
0: home feel better about themselves. It's like, you know, I don't really have a lot going in my life, but for Christ's sake, I'm not like this guy.
1: Right, right. And it sort of melded the the sort of the evening terrible TV from Morton Downey Jr. with the sort of afternoon classy TV of like Oprah Winfrey, and you get this sort of amalgamation. So at any given day on Jerry Springer, you might be watching a topic like Ku Klux Klan members in my neighborhood. You know, police brutality in Cincinnati because Jerry Springer was the mayor of Cincinnati for a while. Mm-hmm. And then I'm pregnant, but I don't know who the father is. Here's possibly seven people. That could yeah, Here's a short list of seven right. people. Here's a picture of the New York Knicks. Yeah. Uh, it could be any one of those guys. And every single day it was just, I don't want to say the bat shit insane because that makes it sound not as insane as it was. It was rock yeah, f- insane. A, it was crazy a, town.
0: Yeah, it's a disservice to bat shit at that point. Yeah. And there was a lot of controversy, duh, but I mean, there was a lot of controversy that apparently Jerry's producers would liquor the guests up before the show to make them more likely to, like, fight. Because it was only a matter of time before one person would just be, like, jumping up out of his seat, running across the stage and just, like, pummeling on the other person.
1: And Well, the guy that was, like, the stage security guard, he became famous in his own right. His name uh, was Steve, Steve, I think his name Steve, was. Yeah, Steve, Steve something. And he ended up with his own show after Jerry Springer retired. Jerry Springer got into politics again and then washed out of it. But he picked up and ran with the show for like two seasons after Jerry Springer retired.
0: Right. It, it didn't do nearly as well as, uh, as Jerry did or that they had hoped for. Because, well, I mean, Jerry Springer is, you know, charismatic and Steve.
1: You know, <laughs> he just was not.
0: Steve was really good at grabbing people by the waist and putting them back down. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. But, yeah, ask him questions, and he was like,
0: so, uh, you think it was your uncle? <laughs> yeah, they should have had Chevy Chase as a guest on the show and just yeah. have them stare blankly at each other. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's what you do here. I am the host of the show, really. Is that that's the case, huh? So, yeah. it's uh, that's uh, something, yeah. Well, Jerry Springer was an interesting guy. His show always, when they talked about politics, because he was, like, on the ground in Cincinnati, which is a struggling city, mm-hmm. like, he always bent towards, like, Better social services, decriminalization of certain drugs, and leniency with sentencing, and all these things would sometimes literally come up as topics on his show, but it would be yeah. like once a quarter. You'd have to wade yeah, through. Yeah, because that doesn't sell. You'd have to wade through yeah, 89 episodes of like, you know, I'm in love with my mom, all the right. way up, you know, through that to finally get to one that was like, he has like a mayor of a small town on to talk to about social problems.
0: Yeah, people don't want to hear about, you know, the welfare system. People want to hear about, well, if he treats you so bad, why would you just leave him? You know? All right. Uh, Moving on to October the 1st. October the 1st, 1953, the first issue of Playboy magazine hits the shelves.
1: And create a whole sort of weird new subgenre of literature for men, like. Magazines for men, right? It's it's the first uh, issue of uh, Playboy that had the the Marilyn Monroe spread in it, right?
0: Uh, yes, Marilyn Monroe was the cover girl, and the well, what would yeah, well, what would become the centerfold later on? Yeah,
1: yeah. I saw those pictures. Do you see those pictures? Uh,
0: yeah, dude, I have the internet. Everybody has seen those pictures. Oh, That's not very well, I, groundbreaking saying you've seen I,
1: those pictures. Yeah, I understand that. I, you know, I I saw those pictures too, but I didn't want to say like I jerked off to those pictures. Yeah. <laughs> We should go back in time and talk about what magazines were in the 1950s. This is just as TV is coming into its infancy. Yeah. So, the premier entertainment for people is magazines full of short stories. Kids had magazines full of short stories. Parents had magazines full of short stories and home stuff for like female centric magazines like McCall's.
0: Good housekeeping.
1: Yeah, yeah. good housekeeping. There was male centered stuff too, which was like Action Adventure magazine and Playboy. So, it, aside from having pictures of scantily clad or naked women in them, they also had articles about stereo equipment, car st- stuff, uh, short stories or essays by, like, opinion writers for, like, the New York Times or novelists or whatever. So there's a bunch of sort of stuff that's in those magazines. And Hefner, for all of his faults, and he's got a lifetime supply of them.
0: He had more more problems than he had smoking jackets, if, hey. you, <laughs> yes. if you want to say it that way, yeah.
1: Yeah. The magazine lived on for a year. I think it's like, it's virtual now. So that just makes it internet porn with a paywall. But, right, you know, up until the, the, the era of the internet, uh, it was still, uh, as a writer, it's still one of the best markets for writers that you could get into. They paid a huge amount of money for stuff. Sure.
0: Also, Others. yeah. And like throughout the, we'll say 70s, 80s, and 90s, those 30 years right there was like the big heyday for uh, for Playboy magazine and for Hefford himself. But getting the Playboy interview, that was like like a prestige kind of a thing.
1: Yeah. Yep. You end up with like you know guys like Norman Mailer and
0: right. And I remember, yeah, I remember Jesse Jackson had had the interview, which was like almost controversial because he was a, a reverend and to be interviewed by Playboy magazine. I'm sure, I'm
1: sure there was no there were no segments that didn't make it into the interview. We were like, would you please stop showing me those naked lady pictures and ask me a question? Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, like this first one. <laughs> But, you know, and Hefner was smart enough to diversify in the 60s where he had the Playboy clubs in every city. He had a Playboy TV show that was syndicated that was like the precursor to like late night TV talk shows where he had jazz bands and literary figures come on and talk in a room full of like, the idea was like a young urban aesthetic. That didn't last into the too too far into the 70s because there was too much choice by then. But like he got in early and and was able to sort of build his brand really, really fast and, and hold it there.
0: So two things. One, there was a short period of time whenever Playboy said that they weren't going to have centerfolds anymore. And if it wasn't for new Coke, that would be the most disastrous decision ever made in business. And then early on, real early on, Playboy had this offer for subscriptions that if you paid, I think it was like $50, which is a lot of money in the, uh, in the fifties. But if you paid $50, you had a lifetime subscription. And they honored all of those lifetime subscriptions. You paid that one one time. I would imagine if those people are still alive, which mathematically is not the most possible thing, I would imagine that they would also get the virtual ones for free too.
1: All right. And uh, let's wrap up the week on the 2nd. October 2nd, uh, we've got a 2 for this week, thematically linked. Uh, 1895, the first cartoon comic strip is printed in a newspaper. It's a comic strip called The Yellow Kid... And whenever you hear the phrase yellow journalism, you're talking about this particular comic strip, believe it or not. Oh, no kidding. Yep. That's where it comes from? It does indeed. And the yellow kid was used as a propaganda tool to help lead the United States into war against Spain during the Spanish-American War, which was 1896. Yep. The comic strip was super-duper popular. It sort of started up an argument over syndication. Can other newspapers have this comic? It was in the Hearst papers that this comic became really popular. Hearst owned a lot of newspapers so he was able to s- technically syndicate the Yellow Kid comic book all over the place. So other newspapers wanted to do the same thing. And that's... Cr- so
0: that was the first comic strip of newspapers? First comic strip of
1: newspapers, yep. Oh, oh, and cool. Yellow Journalism came about because the Yellow Kid was used to sell the idea of war with Spain as part of a broader campaign where made war seem like it was uh, an inevitable necessity in defense of democracy. And that was called Yellow Journalism because it was in the Hearst Papers, which had the Yellow Kid comic. And the other of the two? Ah, uh, 1950. Probably the most famous and certainly for a long time the most popular newspaper comic in the world, Peanuts, by Charles M. Schultz, debuts.
0: Went on to have a enormous legacy. I still have, I'm looking at it right now, a Snoopy... 12-inch ruler that I got when I was in grade school, but I still have it around. I use it for uh, for some of the stuff that I do with my artwork.
1: Uh, <laughs> I love that comic, um, and I uh, and I unabashedly loved Peanuts right up through its ending. I always read it whenever I had a newspaper that had it in it. That was my first my first comic book that my first comic that I read in the comics section.
0: Yeah, it was always uh, in my newspaper. Anyway, it was always on the it was the top one. It was like right there for prime. It was at prime real estate, at least in the Sunday comics, it did. Now, Charles Schultz, Charles Schultz died in 2000. Right. So he died 22 years ago. But Peanuts is still in the newspaper. every. Well, some, some newspapers every single day still. They call it Peanuts Classics yeah, or something rerun, like that. There's, yeah. there's
1: like, uh, you know, there's something like 49 years of strips and they just rerun the they rerun the class and they're timeless. They don't reflect anything of the time in which they were written. It's one of the things that makes that comic so good. is purely escapist.
0: All right, uh, moving on to the celebrity birthdays. September 26, 1914, Jack LaLanne. Now, Jack Lalane was a fitness expert, and he opened up the very first U.S. fitness club in 1936. He also, this, is, this blows my mind, he invented the jumping jack.
1: Hell, huh? <laughs> oh, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yep. All right. The jumping jack. I should say this as a trivia question. The jumping jack is named for Jack LaLanne. Wow. He also invented the leg extension machine and the pulley machines
1: using cables. Oh, okay. Well, Yeah, this guy was
0: like a fitness crazy person.
1: Yeah, he he had his own brand of equipment too, not just the stuff that he invented. Like, I don't know if he took the patents and just let the patents go. Or if he kept the patents for himself, I have to look that up. Because, like, effectively modern gymnasiums, at least up until very, very, very recently, all take their inspiration from how he built exercise equipment to isolate specific muscle groups, to do, like, large body movements with weight uh, that didn't require having a stand full of incredibly heavy and difficult-to-manage iron weights.
0: He actually had the very first television exercise program, The Jack LaLanne Show which ran for almost 35 years. It started in 1951 and finally got taken off the air in 1985. Yeah, he
1: was forced which to retire because he was 155 years old by then.
0: Yeah, he would have been about 70.
1: And he still went on after that and did exhibitions where he like pulled buses with his teeth and yeah. swam, it was like you know, nine 75 miles. years and old,
0: and kick your ass, yeah. All right, moving on to somebody who is not the picture of health.
1: Well, September 27, 1934, American actor and perpetual old guy Wilford Brimley was born. You may know him from such films as The Thing, where he played Blair, and you may know him from Cocoon, where he played the old guy that lived in the old folks' home and was only 53 years old. Even though he was playing a guy who was in his 70s.
0: Probably best known
1: for the China Syndrome. The China Syndrome, yeah, where he was like 13, but he was playing a guy who was 62 years old. It's amazingly (laughs) enough. Uh, He was also in Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Was he? Yeah, he was the leader of Cure, Harold W. Smith.
0: So to wrap this up for everybody else, for anybody who doesn't know all these uh, obscure movies, uh, the thing notwithstanding, Wilfred Brimley is the guy in the
1: meme. Where he says diabetes. Yeah. As he was in the Quaker Oats commercials. Right. Where if you ate Quaker Oats, you wouldn't get diabetes. Diabetes. Diabetes.
0: Yeah, he died uh, about 2 years ago, he yeah. died in 2020. He had a he had a good long run. Yeah, I think that's like an illusion that he had a good long run because he just looked like he was on the verge of death for it, so it long. It must
1: have you must have walked off the set and like peeled off a suit and looked like, you know, <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio. Nobody knew who he was Did you say you were Wilfred Brimley? I am Wilfred Brimley. You can't be Wilfred Brimley. My grandfather's not as old as Wilfred Brimley. All right, moving on to September the
0: 28th, 1967, American actress Mira Sorvino. Oh, Paul Sorvino's daughter. Yeah,
1: Yeah, Whose daughter? Paul Sorvino from uh, Goodfellas and a bunch of other stuff.
0: Oh, I see. Mira Sorvino, probably best known for her role in a made-for-TV movie about Marilyn Monroe. Uh, But she also was in Romeo and Michelle's Class Reunion.
1: Yeah, I remember her in that. I I liked her in uh, a film that was based on an unfinished Edith Wharton book called The Buccaneers, which was, I don't know, put out by PBS. I watched it all the way through. It was like a miniseries and was really fun. Um, oh, yeah. I didn't I didn't think I would enjoy it anywhere near as much as I did, but I really did. And then she kind uh, of vanished not long after that came out.
0: She was kind of, uh, had a career derailed by a certain Hollywood producer whose name appears on every bad story you ever heard. Oh, um, that guy. Yeah. It rhymes with carvey Beinstein. <laughs> but at any rate i heard rumors that there was going to be a sequel to romey and michelle's class reunion so hopefully that does happen because those are great characters and she could pick herself up another paycheck uh,
1: i wonder what the plot line of that would be like i don't know what they could mine for more plot line yeah. all right moving on to the 29th september 29th 1942 funny woman and singer madeline Kahn. Probably best known for her roles in Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and, gosh, uh, High Anxiety, a bunch of other stuff. She had some TV work. Probably best known for... Probably best known for... If you say, oh, Clue. Madeline. No, she was in Clue. She was in Clue,
0: yes. I think that's... I mean, yes, the Mel Brooks movies. But I, to me, that's my uh, my favorite role from her. She was so... She's a very funny woman. She is very funny. And uh, she, she had her own sitcom in the 80s called Oh, Madeline, which lasted like all of one season. But I remember I used to watch it and I thought she was very funny. And then Clue came out. I was like, oh, there she is again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I thought I, she was super funny as Lily Von Stoop in uh, Blazing Saddles. That's one of my favorite characters for her. And she's great as Frankenstein's fiance in Young Frankenstein.
0: And she had a beautiful, beautiful singing voice. It's actually one of my favorite parts of Clue. It's like very subtle. At the end of the movie, when they're all singing For He's a Jolly Good Fellow, she's doing the harmonies. Like, if you listen, you can hear her doing the harmonies with like the, and the, "woo" and all that. Very funny for, for somebody to be doing harmonies during a round of For He's a Jolly Good Fellow is just very silly and funny. All right, moving on to September the 30th, 1931, American actress Angie Dickinson. Oh, yeah.
1: Staple of 1970s TV in my childhood with yep. Policewoman starring Angie Dickinson.
0: I was like looking up her IMDb because I couldn't think of anything else that she was in besides Police Woman, And she was also in a horror movie called Dress to Kill, yeah. which was kind of controversial for her to be doing. One, because... At that point, those kind of horror movies were kind of frowned, you know, I mean, not frowned upon and um, looked down on, I should say. They weren't prestige pictures, but she was doing dress to Kill. She was like 50 years old when that came out, and there was a lot of nudity in that movie. It was all a body double, but it was still like a little bit of a controversy for Angie Dickinson to be in that movie.
1: I, I really like that movie. That's Brian De Palma uh directed Ron directed that and it's him yep. sort of aping the Italians who were aping Hitchcock so he's doing like a gialli movie which is already a knockoff of a Hitchcock yeah. and uh manages to carry off all the sort of grittiness and 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 sort of sleaze that's in a gialli movie but uh, yeah it was it was a really good film and surprisingly enough holds up really well that might be the first film I remember seeing John Lithgow in too
0: Oh wow. I remember it being on HBO and I remember watching it at the time. Most of the time I spent watching it was like with my hands over my eyes because I was only like ten years old and my father wasn't having any of that. Right. But yeah, maybe I'll go back and watch that when I uh when I get a chance. It's
1: it's it holds up. It's really good. The computer that the kid has is hilarious, but the rest of it is great. <laughs> Alright, moving on to the first. October first, nineteen forty seven, a guy named Dave Arneson, who you probably don't recognize the name of unless and I don't! And unless you are in possession of a set, including a 20-sided, a 10-sided, an 8-sided, a 6-sided, a 4-sided, and that's as many sides as you can have on a set of dice. He is the co-inventor of Dungeons & Dragons, along with Gary Gyjax. Ah. And I played D&D as a kid and loved it. My son plays it now and also loves it.
0: My brother, uh, fan of the show, hi Norman, uh, my brother has been playing Dungeons & Dragons fairly regularly since he was 15 years old. And yeah, yeah. He's been playing since like, you know, the the early goings of the 80s. I mean, obviously the pandemic put a kibosh on that, but he's been playing either Dungeons and Dragons or some variation thereof. There's tons of variations in different role-playing games now. This is one of my favorite things that my brother does. Actually, probably it is my favorite thing that my brother does is he runs like an after-school club, Yep. You know, for kids, because not every kid wants to play sports. Not every right. kid wants to use their muscles. Or not every kid is, ab- is able to do those sort of a things. So he actually teaches kids how to play Dungeons & Dragons in an, uh, in an after-school program. Oh, that's awesome. I freaking love that. Yeah, that's so cool. You know, he spends time with these kids. And I remember, uh you know, working at the Ren Fair where this, uh, this gentleman came up to me and introduced himself he's like you're norman's brother i said yes i am he says uh your brother teaches my son to play Dungeons and dragons in an after school program and i was like oh that's awesome and like and the admiration that he had you know for my brother and what my brother was doing with his kid was was legit it was real you know and that was a really really cool moment that that, i hold on to that
1: that's awesome yeah that's awesome i played with kids that i was in the orchestra with when I was in middle school, and they introduced me to it. And I played all through middle school. I remember the summer between middle school and high school, I think I played every day for, for all of the month of July. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it's really, really immersive and fun. Like, the same fun you get if you play, like, a computer-based role-playing game now. It's sure. just as fun to do it with pencil and paper and dice.
0: All right, and wrapping up the birthdays, October the 2nd, 1971, Tiffany pop singer Tiffany probably best known for her work in Sharknado 7 or 8 I don't know which one
1: (laughs) she definitely has been in a lot of those movies lately yeah
0: Uh, in the 80s she was a pop singer she had uh, a couple of big hits um Cover songs, mostly. She did, I Think We're Alone Now. That's probably her most famous. I know there's a group of people at my haunted house that have this running gag slash joke and dance that goes along with the uh, I Think We're Alone Now song. Ah. For a while there, she had a, uh, a big rivalry with Debbie Gibson, who was also a pop singer of uh, the same age at that same time. Yeah,
1: I remember the big deal with her wasn't so much that she was a pop singer. But that she was Mm -hmm. a pop singer who toured by playing in malls. Here we go, back in the Wayback Machine, right? Back when Bill and I were just wee lads uh, who Mm -hmm. had ample time to kill and would walk around the mall. There was always a stage in the malls that we went to. There was a stage in every mall. And they had fashion shows and demonstrations and bubblegum contests and all this other stupid stuff. Mm -hmm. They'd also lease them out to somebody like Tiffany, who would tour and go mall to mall. And just play. And inevitably, kids would come over and be like, hey, this girl's pretty cool. And she'd sell a ton of records. Then she right. got a record contract. And then she would come at the behest of the record stores in the mall to help drive record store traffic. And she had like th- sometimes thousands of kids coming to oh, see her sing, I Kidding. think we're yeah, alone. Yeah, yeah. On You know,
0: that first album, the self-titled album, she was selling out, you know, arenas around the country. And then her second album came out, and I remember it, it was called Hold an Old Friend's Hand, which is a terrible name for an album. Yes. And that album featured the single... The
1: Worst Song Ever.
0: All right, Jeff, so we have a lot of different categories in The Worst Song Ever... We do indeed. Yep. We have the, like the one we had last week, which is a terrible song that I actually kind of like with our good friend Klaus Nomi. This is one of those categories where it's popular, people like it. I don't get it. I don't get, I don't understand the violent fems. I don't get it, Jeff.
1: I haven't ever. Well, I mean, I, I get it. I just don't. It's, it doesn't fall into trying to say this in a way that is not negative. That's what it this section is for, Jeff. I don't find it on any playlists that I build. And yet I have a couple of their records in my collection. I just don't ever listen to them. They were bought not by me, by my wife, and she really enjoyed them. And when she was in the mood to listen to them, I also listened to them with her. But they're they're never anything I've gone back to on my own. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason is it sucks.
0: (laughs) So there is a lot of uh, Violent Vem songs that I don't like. We'll just roll with uh blister in the sun because it's probably their most famous song
1: first song on their first record
0: here is the clip The thing with this song is my P brain locks this song into the early '90s. Okay, I remember you know going to the clubs, the dance clubs in the '90s, and they would play this song. There would be the the local bands that would cover this song. This album came out in 1983. Yep. But for some reason, the oddball quirkiness of the early 90s just kind of stuck their hooks in the song and let it roll.
1: Yeah, it's really a foundational piece of music from what would ultimately become the alternative style of music in like uh, 10 years later, Right, uh, or 8 years later.
0: Yeah, between 1983 and 1991, those are like dog years in the music industry.
1: Right, the whole Violent Femmes record, mm-hmm. the, first, the first record at yeah. least, is that it? It's ultimately it's a folk slash country record. It's just done really fast, sort of punk rock timing, right? And a lot of like simple th- th- three chord songs that are played on acoustic stuff and a very small drum kit with brushes instead of sticks. And it sounds different than anything else that was out in in eighty three. It doesn't sound anything like the super. I mean, eighty three was like Kenny Rogers was country. And Willie Nelson and Kenny Rogers were country. And Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and Kenny Rogers it was like nine million producers and eight trillion dollars to make a single. And right. this record is like three guys or four guys, like it's like one playthrough, it feels like in the studio. It's very rough and tumble. Mm-hmm. That's the extent of my high praise for this record that's <laughs> just ended.
0: Yeah, they were billed as kind of like a an acoustic punk rock band. And they actually came out, like, you know, at the tail whip of the end of the first run of punk rock.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, I see no reason why they wouldn't have been on, like, if there was another version of Urg, a music war, right? Four years later, they would have been featured.
0: Erg too. So they're from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And they were like, you know, a street corner kind of a band because it's a guitar, a bass, and, like, not even a drum kit. It's like two bongos and a snare drum, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, one guy with a snare.
0: Yeah, they were playing on some street corner, and the guitar player for the Pretenders at the time, James Honeyman Scott, happened to catch them. He talked to them and actually brought them along, and they played in between the opening band and the Pretenders. They just like brought them up on stage, and they did like two or three songs.
1: What would become known as the Wesley Willis effect, right? they, <laughs> yeah. they pull a guy off the street and like, you're opening for us tonight.
0: Right, my love for the Violent Femmes is runs about as deep as my love for Wesley Willis. Um, our friend Gordon Gano, or Gano, who's the the singer with the with the voice there. Whenever they put the band together, they he only wanted to do it for like a year, and he was like, oh, I kind of want to go to college, and they kind of convinced him to stick it out to see how far they could go with it, and
1: ten albums later,
0: yeah, well, sort of. I mean. If you look at their lineup change, uh, I mean, lineup history and all that, there are huge breaks in between because they kept breaking up and getting back together. They went through like three or four different drummers, if you can call them that. They added a horn section at one point. Apparently, Gordon Gano and Brian Ritchie butt heads a lot, especially when it comes to money and stuff, because there was a, a lot of uh, arguments and lawsuits uh, concerning the money on
1: who's going to get what. I guess when you're in a band like that, and they're nobody that was huge, right? They were a slow burn band. Even when I was in high school, like, this is going to sound terrible. Yeah. But the Violent Femmes was the band that the really rich pundy ass kids used <laughs> to love. Because it used to piss their parents off. It's no different than what would become like sort of modern shoegazer rock. But it was just the first of it. You know? Yeah. Well, know? So what I'm getting at though is like when you've got a small pool of money to fight over, you yeah. fight hard because there's not much.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would agree with the shoegazer moniker on that simply because the, most of the songs are very upbeat. Like I guess you could say they were ahead of their time because that first album came out in 1983. It didn't go platinum for almost, tw- uh, I think it was over 20 years. I think it went platinum in 2005. Jeez, take your time, guys. And then, uh, but like I said, it fit in perfectly with that early 90s kind of like weird uh, alternative. Whenever the word alternative actually meant something. Like I said, yeah, they fit in perfectly in 1991. So if you're going to throw any compliments towards the Violent Femmes, I'm going to go, yeah, with uh, they were ahead of their time. Yeah, 1990, early 90s, I think it was 91 or 92, somewhere around there. They put out an album called Why Do Birds Sing, which featured the single... American Music, which I really had a tough time deciding whether I was going to use that or Blister in the Sun as the worst song.
1: As a quick bit of fun storytelling, I started my run as a DJ for the two years or so that I did it at Cape Cod Community College and mm-hmm. at WKKL. We had a music director who was super duper on top of things yep. right up until the week I started working at the radio station. And then his girlfriend broke up with him and I never saw that dude again. <laughs> I literally, I saw him one time in two years and we had the same 75 CDs on our heavy rotation rack for the whole time that I was there. Huh? One of them being Why Do You Birds Sing with the song American Music, which is the first song on the album, circled in red magic marker that said, play this one only. You can only play so many songs off the heavy rotation chart. It, surprisingly you know, enough, you go through like all 70 of them in a day.
0: You know what I remember about all, all that? I came out to Cape Cod Community College with you once or twice. I think it was twice. The only Violent Femme song that comes to mind that I like is a song called Out the Window which you played because you refused to play American music.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well I well we used to, there was a prison nearby so we used to get a lot of our requests from the prison. So we get yep. collect calls that said this is a collect call from Play Virus by KMFDM. The caller has hung up. You will not be <laughs> charged for this call. We used to get those all the time. So I used to I started getting calls like after a year and a half. Yeah. This is a collect call from, oh, man, not American music again. (laughs) Oh, the caller has hung up. You will not be charged for this call. So I've got prisoners kind of, like, telling me not to play this music anymore. So I I got into trouble because we had a sound effect cart. Cart's like an eight-track tape with one track. Yeah. Uh, Use it for advertisements and public service announcements and stuff. And we had one of sound effects. And one of the sound effects was the sound of somebody hacksawing something in half. Right. So I said, from now on, I'm never playing this record by the Violent Femmes on this show again. And I played the cart of me cutting the record, the the CD in half and didn't think anything of it, put it back on the shelf, played the next song. And then not even five minutes later, I get a phone call from the station manager. He goes, did you just destroy a CD on the air? I was like, no, dude, it was a sound effects cart. He goes, (laughs) oh, okay. Well, if you'd cut up a CD, we'd have to really talk about whether or not you're suited to be on the radio. I'm like, man, it's a sound effect cart that you made like you don't recognize <laughs> the sound effects that you made it was really funny oh. uh, so yeah i don't love that song
0: and then you sawed up the sound effect card just and a then bit. i Make saw you... that's
1: right i saw that thing in half
0: just to prove a proof of point all right so before we wrap up the show i do have the very popular and always well received trivia question jeff there is a city in the united states of america they are home to the first hospital the first medical school the first zoo and the first daily newspaper where is this city located?
1: Now, a, a person like me who generally thinks of history and, and trivia questions as some, being something you have to answer fast. You want to be the first one to answer. So you have the first answer that comes to mind. And you got about a. That doesn't sound like you at all. That sounds like an 80 an 20 potential for success. But I had to think about this one a little bit because my first instinct would be incorrect. I think back to the founding of the United States, to our founding fathers. And they did the Continental Congress, not in Boston. They didn't do it in New York City. They didn't do it in Washington. They didn't do it in Lexington. They did it in Philadelphia. They signed the Declaration of Independence, Philadelphia. Is that First, your answer? Phil- the Philadelphia, Philadelphia is my answer, yes.
0: Okay, Okay, you could have said that like 20 minutes ago. No, we, would the have answer... been, we, wouldn't, we
1: wouldn't have even gotten to the worst song ever if it was 20 minutes ago. Well, I got to
0: edit the show, damn it. All right. Uh, the answer is... Philadelphia, hey, ding, 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 ding. One in a row. One in a row. <laughs> All right. Yep, Philadelphia is home to the first hospital, the first zoo, the first medical school, and the first daily newspaper. Congratulations, Jeff McLadridge. Uh Please send us your snail mail address, and your prize will be in the mail forthcoming.
1: Oh, is it going to be a free chimney sweeping? I have a QR code, you know. Uh. <laughs>
0: All right, guys. Uh, that is the uh, close of the show. We will see you back here in exactly seven days. Second night, Jeff.
1: Good night, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye guys. A special shout out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibly. Or this week was way better than last year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook or Instagram or the hot new social media app that I just made up called Group. That's group with two O's and two P's by looking for Twibly. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And also, don't sell all your stuff and climb to the top of a mountain waiting for the end of the world. I mean, the numbers add up and all, but we'd never tell you to do that.